Thanks, Bobby. I know he's listening, so I can thank him for that generous introduction. When Bobby asked me to speak, I said, well, Bobby, as you know, I am a professor. I'm not a preacher. And he said, that's fine. Come and do your thing. So uh, I really don't do sermons very much. I do lectures. And so you're going to get a little bit more like teaching this morning instead of perhaps what you normally associate with a sermon. So I'm not starting with a story. And um, yeah. Anyway, uh, I'm just going to do my thing, and that's what Bobby wanted me to do. So you're going through a series on the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. And of course, it's very familiar territory to most of us. It's something that is, sort of runs in the veins of our country and our churches. And it's familiar territory. The problem with familiar territory is that we can kind of get in ruts as we think about it. We can kind of get our mind set, oh, oh, I know what that is, and then really not think hard about it. So I'm going to push you a little bit this morning as we think about this topic. He assigned me the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. At the church I go to, we usually read the text aloud together. Didn't see much point doing that this morning. <laughs> it's kind of a short text. Don't murder. But we've got a lot to work with here. I know that as Bobby's been preaching through the Decalogue, he's talked a little bit about the larger issues uh, of how the Decalogue fits into uh, what we call the Torah or the law. And, but I'm going to review some of those because I don't know what he has said or what he has not said. And so we're going to get a running start that way by starting with sort of the big issues and then moving in. Uh, so I refer to it as the Torah, the Hebrew word, uh, often translated law. Uh, I prefer to use Torah because it doesn't mean law. And therefore it would be sort of misleading and problematic for me to use the word law. When we hear the word law, we have a whole backpack full of ideas that we include with that. We think of legislation, we think of the Congress who makes law, we think about police or courts that enforce law. We think about law in our cultural context. And that's the problem, because then we impose our cultural context onto that ancient world which I'm here to tell you was different in many, many ways. And this starts off then with calling on us to rethink what we mean by Torah. So I can't teach a whole semester on that. I just taught a whole course on it for last week for, a, for Regent College in Vancouver, and we had to cut a lot out because even a week wasn't near long enough. I've written a book on it called The Lost World of the Torah, and we had to trim that down as well. It's just a very, very big topic. So I'm just going to give you one quick, hmm, it's not even a sound bite, a little bit of a direction for thinking about what the Torah is. The Torah is part of the covenant God made with Israel. With Israel. With Israel. Not us. 
Yeah. <laughs> we are not in that covenant. We have our own covenant. Thank the Lord for that. But it's the new covenant. The significance of the Torah will start with Israel. The significance of the Torah is that it offers wisdom, not legislation. It offers wisdom to guide them in forging an identity. It's all about their identity. And that's supposed to correlate with the holy status that God gave them as his chosen people. We think about holiness sort of equating it with a mix of morality and piety. That's misleading. Holiness is not something we achieve. Holiness is a status that we are given. And when God adopted Israel as his people, he called them holy. We even mistranslate that verse a little bit. In your Bibles, you often read, be holy, as if it's a command that you have to try to accomplish. But that's not the form of the verb. You are holy because I am holy and I've just associated you with me and therefore you share my holy identity. So Israel is supposed to forge this identity that will correlate with this holy status that they have been given when they were designated as God's people. That's what Torah is. Helping Israel to know what this is supposed to look like. But again, they can't lose it, they can't gain it. Their holy status, their position as God's people, didn't earn it, can't lose it. It's their status. It's what God says is so. The Torah then, again, provides wisdom for holiness, not legislation for morality. We misread it if we think it's legislation and try it. It's not even legislation for them, let alone legislation for us. If we try to turn it into a moral system, not going to work. That's not what it is. It has implications for morality. But it's not trying to lay down a moral system. So that's my very quick thing about Torah. Now, of course, the Decalogue is a part of the Torah. And the Decalogue likewise gives a brief summary, a mini-Torah, about divine identity. But each of the ten sayings is only the, the tip of the iceberg. Each one of them plummets to the depths of every aspect of life and identity. The Decalogue then directs Israel to the order that will reflect the reputation that Yahweh desires to present in their world. Not in every world. Not in every culture, not in every context, not at every time. Although, many of these things easily extend beyond that context. But the intention was not to give the ten universals. 
You'll notice when Jesus was asked, what is the essence of the law? That's a Greek word, namas, which is different from Torah. Never mind. Professor. Okay. So, and notice that Jesus doesn't say, Decalogue, look it up. He doesn't mention the Decalogue as containing the essence of what Torah was all about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. The idea of this wisdom for holiness was that that would bring order to the covenant relationship between God and Israel as they dwelled in his midst. It gave shape to their covenant community. It describes how Israel will retain Yahweh's favor and have life in the land. It's wisdom in some of the same ways that Proverbs is wisdom. You know, we don't often hear people talking about, you need to obey Proverbs. No, I mean, Proverbs carries a lot of significance for us, but obey wouldn't be quite the right word. When something is wisdom, you heed it. You pay attention to it. You take it seriously. You make every attempt to live it out. Because wisdom is desirable. And Torah and the Decalogue are another way to point toward wisdom. The covenant set up a vassal relationship with Israel. Yahweh was their king, their suzerain. And they were his vassal. And that's why even the book of Deuteronomy uses the same format that international treaties used in the ancient world. Because that's how relationships between suzerains and vassals were established. Certainly in the covenant, we have the idea that Yahweh is their God. But the whole covenant idea is based on the idea that Yahweh is your king. So how is Israel supposed to live as vassals? The Torah is giving them an idea of that. But it follows a format that is, I'm going to give you a word that's probably unfamiliar for you here. Professors do this. We revel in it. Okay, Aspective. Now you know the word aspect, and that'll help you here. When I say that it's aspective, it gives aspects or perspectives on what order will look like. They're examples. They're not comprehensive, not exhaustive. They're little examples from various areas of life. Give you a little idea about what holiness and wisdom and order will look like. We know that they're not exhaustive because of all that it doesn't say, all that the Decalogue doesn't cover, all that the Torah doesn't cover. And you'll notice that when Jesus, yeah, I, I like the idea of bringing Jesus into even Old Testament sermons. Yeah. When Jesus talks about the Sermon on the Mount, he gives his Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about murder, you've heard it said, 
that you shouldn't murder. But I tell you, and in that turn, I tell you, he's already saying, there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more going on here. You need to think past that little aspective subtitle, don't murder, and get down into it. You know, the book of Deuteronomy does the same thing. After the book of Deuteronomy gives the Decalogue in chapter 5, then from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 21, it develops a portfolio for each of the ten sayings of the Decalogue. So even in Israelite times, this idea that each of those statements was just an invitation to a conversation. Because there's always more to it. Wisdom cannot be exhausted on any topic. So this is an invitation. Now, that's the Decalogue. Now we have to talk about the sixth word in the Decalogue. I call it the sixth word instead of the sixth commandment because that's what the Bible does. The Bible never calls them the Ten Commandments. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't mean to burst your balloon, but it doesn't. It calls them the Ten Words. And Decalogue picks that up. You kind of know the word logos from the New Testament, right? Deca, ten. Ten words. We're the ones that changed it into law and made it commandments. And to do so might feel like it makes it easier to work with, but it's reductionistic. So, the sixth word fits in that sequence of six through nine. And I understand that Bobby has not been going in order, so maybe you've done lots of these already. Okay, six through nine. So, we have murder, adultery, theft, false witness. And these are all the basic things that can disrupt community and can destroy order. So they're worth mentioning. Now here's the interesting point. Nobody in the ancient Near East would have disagreed with any of those four. You find those same four concerns throughout ancient Near Eastern documents whether they're court documents or wisdom documents. We have collections, many of you have heard of Hammurabi's Stele, a collection of legal provisions, and it's interested in the same kinds of things. It also is trying to establish order. So imagine yourself sitting at the base of Mount Sinai. You're among the Israelites here. You went back in your TARDIS machine or something, and, and there you are, okay? And... Boom, thunder and lightning, and a voice booms from the mountaintop. Don't murder. And all the people go, oh. Heard that already. Nothing new. Why'd you bother making the trip down to the mountain? Sound and light show's great, but, you know, give me something that I can work with here. After all, we don't really think that the Israelites lived 400 years in Egypt before they got to Sinai and felt perfectly content to murder anybody they wanted. 
So what do we think's going on here? Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Get to the good stuff. What's happening here? What makes these sections of the Ten Commandments revelation? God's mighty word. If everybody knew it already, including the Israelites, and no one would have suggested any different way to live in society. Did you ever think about that? This is what I mean that when we get to the Ten Commandments, we can kind of get in a rut. I know this stuff. But have you thought about it? Jesus certainly wanted his audience at the Sermon on the Mount to think about it in ways that they had not before, to think beyond the Pharisees, think beyond legislation, think beyond legalism, think beyond that view of Torah that reduces it to say, really think about what's going on here. So we should do that. Israel was to be a light to the nations. That didn't mean that they were supposed to go out evangelizing, proselytizing. They didn't do that. They were supposed to be a light to the nations because they were supposed to glow with a community identity founded in holiness and wisdom that everybody would see and notice. And ask, how do they do that? So let's get to this sixth word. Specifically, it prohibits homicide. It's not don't kill. There are ways Hebrew could have said that, and it didn't. It's not don't kill. It's don't murder. A legal category pertaining to homicide. Well, that's interesting because of all that it leaves out. It doesn't address capital punishment. It doesn't address abortion. It doesn't address euthanasia. It doesn't address warfare. As a matter of fact, when Deuteronomy gives its portfolio on this sixth word, a large part of that portfolio is about warfare. And it's not, don't do war. It's how and when to do war. So this sixth word does not address warfare. It does not address suicide. It does not address killing animals, let alone plants. Now, by not including those, it does not suggest, you can't use argument from silence, it does not suggest that any of those activities are approved or even allowed. It's that they're just not addressed in this sixth word. Because the sixth word is not meant to be comprehensive. It is aspective. It opens a conversation. It doesn't represent the entire conversation. 
The sixth commandment, then, does not hold sway over all forms of killing. By saying you shouldn't murder, it doesn't give you the opening to extrapolate, therefore, anything that kills somebody is wrong. Maybe it is, but that's not what this word says. The Torah as a whole, the Decalogue as part of the Torah, they are not comprehensive. Therefore, they cannot be construed in terms of anything not prohibited is therefore allowed. You can't do that either. Well, the Decalogue didn't say that we can't do warfare, and so the Bible's allowing it. Even if the Torah allows it, and it does in a sense because of Deuteronomy 20.21, even if it does allow for it, this is Israel's covenant document. We have to be careful how we extrapolate from it. Because it is not legislation. It is not a universal moral system. So, not committing murder is certainly, obviously, an expression of loving your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't get us very far into all the conversations that we would love to have. But here's the thing. Contrary to sometimes our deepest desires and our unexamined assumptions, the Bible does not make all our moral decisions for us. You can't form, develop a moral system based on only what you take from the Bible, what it has and what it doesn't have. It is not designed to do that. And when we try, we will fail. And we'll often end up making the Bible say things it never said. The Bible does not make all our moral decisions for us. It should be part of our process as we think deeply about morality. But there's an awful lot that it doesn't cover. So if everybody in the ancient world already believed that it was a wrong thing to commit murder and adultery and theft and false witness, then what's the new revelation? See, I've given you a couple minutes to think about that. The new revelation is the new motivation. In the rest of the ancient world, they didn't do those things because, well, it just wasn't a comfortable society if everybody could do those things. Uh, so for them, it was a matter of order founded in the concept of what they perceived as justice. Well, that's a good thing. Order for justice. We all like both those things. And we use law to do that. It's even the TV shows, law and order, right? I mean, we get that. So what was different is that for Israel, they are supposed to be doing some of those same things, but there's something else driving it. What's driving it now is not just what makes society run more smoothly. What's driving it is you are God's people. He has 
brought you to himself. He has identified with you, not just you identifying with him, we are the people of Yahweh, but you are Israel, his people. And therefore, you have to live out that identity. And that may look on the surface the same as some of the people around you, but there's something different driving it. Yahweh's reputation, his name is at stake in how you live, he tells Israel. It's true for us too. We're in a new covenant. Yahweh's reputation is in the balance every day as you live your life in front of the people around you. I'm sorry, did I slip into sermonizing there? (laughs) Got to keep this professor thing going. Okay, so. There's a new context, a new motivation, a new context. The context is the covenant. They are God's covenant people. And not only that, there is covenant people who are living with him in their midst. Notice the Torah is given at Sinai along with the explanations for building the tabernacle. And that's really the main point. Torah is telling them how they can live in the presence of God. Because he's coming. Remember at Eden, they lost access to God's presence, driven from the Garden of Eden, which was the place of his presence. They lost that. But yet God created people to be in relationship with them and to dwell among them. We have this gap from Eden till Sinai. Well, that's not happening. Sinai. He's coming back. He's going to dwell among you. Don't mess up again. Torah. How do you live an ordered community as God's covenant people, the holiness that he has given you, and honor his presence and his reputation? Now, as I've mentioned, Jesus talks about some of the deeper things behind this sixth word. He says that you've heard it said you shouldn't murder. Well, I tell you, be careful about your anger. Be careful about your hate. Now, he's not saying they're the same thing. Certainly, your neighbor would prefer that you hate him or her instead of killing him. Okay? Not saying it's the same thing, but... Think about what's appropriate for the people of God. Murder is certainly not appropriate, but don't reduce it to that. Even your hate, even your anger, bring dishonor to God's name. Think about God's honor, not just a checklist of what you can do and can't do, what you can get away with, and what's been specifically prohibited. As I thought about this, I couldn't help but think about blogs. As I thought about anger and hate. 
blogs have become an easy instrument for just spewing out anger and hate. And that's not limited to the world out there. Plenty of Christian blogs focus on anger and hate. Not all blogs do. I'm not trying to paint everything with the same paintbrush here. But some people feel like a blog gives them the right to do that, almost the calling to do it. And we have to be careful of that as Christians. Remember, Jesus talks about being careful before you say, you fool. There weren't even blogs in his day, I don't think. Insulting, derogatory language that diminishes another for one's own advancement. We even sometimes call this sort of thing character assassination. Don't murder. There are endless ripples from these sayings of the Decalogue. It doesn't exhaust the conversation. It launches the conversation. So what does Torah mean to us? Torah offers us, as we look at it, saying this relationship in the covenant between God and Israel in the ancient world with the tabernacle, okay, different scenario, nevertheless, The Torah offers us wisdom to understand the scope and range of holiness as God communicated that to Israel and therefore can continue to guide us in forging an identity that correlates with the holy status that we have been given through a new covenant as the people of God. When we think about the Torah, when we think about the Decalogue, we should think in terms of the whole. If we try to take each part and formulate a principle from it, we're going to find ourselves, one, frustrated, and two, having to make a lot of things up. And therefore, three, on our own, not representing the authority of God's word. We want to look at the whole of Torah as it communicates order and wisdom and holiness and see the values and wisdom of the whole. And that's how we should be responding to it, recognizing that it's not God's covenant with us, but yet by seeing God working with his people Israel, we can glean perspective from it. I hope that gives us a little sense of what we ought to be doing with this material. The conversations are opened. They are not exhausted. They are not guided. Where do we go from here? And even Jesus, as he deals with them, is dealing with them aspectively. In other words, he sees them opening a conversation, and he follows that conversation, but only kind of on one track, not in all the different things that he could say. 
So even the Sermon on the Mount is an aspective treatment of a few of the items, the words of the Decalogue. It means that God's revelation still leaves us a lot of work to do as his people, as we have these conversations, as we try to work out the very complex issues that are not unique to our age, but nevertheless continue to plague us and perplex us. As God's people, we need to try to work as a community to understand how we can be his people and bring honor to his name in every aspect of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word that you have given us, and we're grateful that it helps us to see the grand scope of your plans and purposes. It helps us to realize how we can participate in them, and it gives us a little bit of hint of how we can be your people. Help us to be faithful as we seek to be your people in a very complex world. We pray that you'll give us wisdom, wisdom gleaned from your word, but wisdom also gleaned from the Spirit as he leads us, as we consider how we can be your people. And we pray this with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Feel free to stand with us as we sing this last song.